thanks for joining the R&R Experience Podcast. My name is Raquel, not Rachel. Happy February. February is such a busy, busy month. Starting with Groundhog's Day. I believe the groundhog predicted an early spring. I love that. Groundhog's Day is a very important day in our family. It's a national holiday because it's my husband's birthday. So we heart the groundhog. February is also the month that we celebrate Valentine's Day. So whether you are going on a romantic dinner with a loved one or a partner, take the time to express love to family and friends. Uh, Maybe contact a family member you haven't spoken to in a while or maybe wave or say hello to your neighbor. Have a conversation with your neighbor. Maybe volunteer at a soup kitchen or a local library. Pamper yourself. Take yourself on a date. Maybe check out a museum or take a stroll in the park and let nature's warm embrace give you a hug. Maybe indulge in that special treat. Chocolate, that's my favorite. Whatever you do, take the time to really extend grace and love and kindness to not only yourself, but to others. February is also Black History Month. We wanted to highlight someone very important in heart health, a pioneer in heart medicine. That is Dr. Vivian T. Thomas. He was a lab tech at John Hopkins. Did not have any formal training in heart surgery. He helped develop an operation to correct congenital heart defects in children called Blue Baby Syndrome. That's when babies are born with low oxygen in the blood. So this was the beginning of surgery of the heart. This was in the 1930s and 1940s, so he endured a lot of racism and obstacles. He was awarded an honorary degree from John Hopkins in 1976. Very inspirational story. Someone that you may want to check out, Dr. Vivian Thomas. February is Heart Health Month. Speaking of inspiration, we had the opportunity to interview esteemed cardiologist, Dr. Cliff Morris, to talk about heart health. We want to thank our listeners who sent in questions for the doctor. Thank you. We are so grateful for your continuous support to this podcast. We want to extend gratitude to Dr. Morris. He answered all of our questions. We spent the evening with him just really dissecting heart disease prevention and ways to really protect your heart. So he shared a wealth of information and knowledge that is going to be beneficial to so many people. We are inspired by his commitment and dedication to his clients, to the community. This episode is dedicated to all the cardiologists who work really hard to keep our hearts beating nice and strong, and especially to Dr. Morris for his kindness and expertise. Take a listen and enjoy. Happy February. Regina, we're so excited today. We have a special guest. Yes, we do. Today, we want to welcome Dr. Cliff Morris of the Morris Cardiovascular and Risk Reduction Center located in Virginia. Dr. Cliff Morris is a highly esteemed preventative cardiologist holding double board certifications in cardiology and lifestyle medicine. His distinctive approach considers the physical, psychological, cultural, and social dimensions of heart disease. In 2011, Dr. Morris established the Morris Cardiovascular and Risk Reduction Center, home to the pioneering medical fitness program. This program, recognized for its groundbreaking work in reversing heart disease and diabetes through comprehensive lifestyle changes, aligns with the principles of lifestyle medicine. A graduate of UNC Chapel Hill, Dr. Morris transitioned from his role as a varsity men's basketball player alongside legends 
like Michael Jordan and Kenny Smith to pursue a career in medicine. His journey led him through medical school, residency, and fellowship in cardiology at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. Throughout his career, Dr. Morris has received numerous prestigious humanitarian awards, notably the first humanitarian award in 2009 and 2019. A defining moment in Dr. Morris's career transpired on September 21st, 2023, when he was honored with the Joseph R. Biden Lifetime Achievement Award in Washington, D.C. This recognition celebrated his unwavering dedication and service to the community. Beyond his professional endeavors, Dr. Morris finds fulfillment in his role as a loving husband to Fran and embraces the endearing title of Pops from his grandchildren. His pursuits include daily meditation, Tai Chi, and active involvement in community service. So welcome, Dr. Morris. It is an honor to be here. I've been very excited about this all day. Awesome. Could you tell us more about the Joseph R. Biden Award and what was it like receiving such a high honor? This was a complete surprise to me. The Joseph R. Biden Award is given to people across the country who have donated 4,000 or more hours of community service, basically out in the community, and they feel is substantial in terms of community service. It was a complete surprise for me, and as far as I'm concerned, one of my crowning achievements, and uh, I'm really excited about it. It's given once or twice a year. This year it was up in D.C. and actually was not at the White House this year, but we did get an opportunity to meet, gosh, quite a few extraordinary individuals, including Willie Gary, who I don't know if you've heard of him, but he has his own autobiography that's coming out. Oh, I mean, the movie has been out already. And Jamie Foxx starred as Willie Gary. Yeah. Yes. Yes. About burial. And if you get the opportunity to see this movie, I'm not in it, but he is one of the recipients of the Presidential Lifetime Achievement Award that I got a chance to meet. And to be in class with somebody like him, I pinch myself every day. (laughs) That's awesome. I did see that movie. It's very good. It's It's amazing. Congratulations again. So you are our first guest for our second season. We are honored to have you here today. February is Heart Health Awareness Month. And if correct me if I'm wrong, but heart disease is the leading cause of death in black women. So we want to talk about that. We also want to talk about the American Heart Association has a checklist called the Essential Eight that outlines ways to keep your heart healthy, such as eating better, moving more, not smoking or quitting smoking, sleeping, managing your weight, controlling cholesterol, managing blood sugar, and managing your blood pressure. So we're going to tackle some of those things today. Absolutely. Uh, I've already lined up which ones we can talk about first. So go ahead. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, some of our listeners emailed us questions. So some questions will be sprinkled throughout the segment just to let you know. So before we dive in, what is a cardiologist, right? Cardiovascular health. I love that word. That's one of my favorite words to say. And also, what is the philosophy of your practice? Well, we are a state-of-the-art cardiology practice. Our main emphasis is to change behavior. So we do all the usual stuff here in a cardiology office, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. If you've had a heart attack in the past or our major objective is to prevent a heart attack, So if you have any type of cardiovascular disease, then that's what a cardiologist does. We manage the entire cardiovascular system, not only your heart, but also the blood vessels going all the way down to the tips of your toes. 
So you would come to me and we do something a little differently. We specialize in lifestyle medicine here. I'm more of a preventative cardiologist. I think one of the best ways not to have a heart attack is to prevent the heart attack. Yes. So a lot of those things that you talked about from the American Heart Association, we specialize in here. We know that 90%, 90% of these chronic medical problems is plaguing America, but specifically Black America, hypertension, high cholesterol, type 2 diabetes, obesity. And 90% of that comes from poor lifestyle, poor lifestyle, poor lifestyle, and poor lifestyle. And so when you go to most doctor's offices, they'll spend 90% of their time usually writing prescriptions and very little time on the thing that created this in the first place, which is the poor lifestyle. So we've decided to flip that on its head and we're going to spend 90% of our time on the poor lifestyle. And then we wind up taking people actually off their blood pressure and diabetic medicine once they get well. That's amazing. That's awesome. Prevention. Yes. Prevention is very important. That's I like that. So, Dr. Morris, what actually is the function of the heart? Okay, well, the function of the heart, and you know, it's so funny you should ask that question because different specialists have different viewpoints as to which organ is the most important. We always have a running joke between the urologist and the cardiologist. <laughs> but the function of the heart is to pump blood, uh, much needed blood with oxygen, to every part of the body that you've got, all the way down to your toes. And so it literally, you only have one, and it literally serves as its main role is every single day, just to squeeze without you having to think about it so that the rest of your organs can get the nutrients that they need in order for them to get the oxygen that they need to function properly. And that's just touching the tip of the iceberg because the heart also works very intimately with the central nervous system. All the organs seem to work beautifully together. But yeah, that's the main function of the heart. It's a pump blood, which is required for life and uh, to send the nutrients and the oxygen the body needs. So when we go see our primary care doctor, one way that they assess your heart is to take your blood pressure. Let's talk about numbers. They give you two numbers, a top number and a bottom number. So can you break that down for our listeners? Yes. So the top number is known as the systolic blood pressure, and the bottom number is known as the diastolic blood pressure. The systolic blood pressure is what happens when the heart actually squeezes. And if I open the heart up, the heart is actually the size of your fist. So everybody can put your fist up in the air and you can see the size of your heart. All right. And here's a model of a heart right here. And if I open it up, you can see that there are actually four chambers of the heart. The main pumping chamber, the left side, the main portion of the heart that pumps blood out into your body. And so when the heart squeezes, that's known as the systolic blood pressure. That's the pressure that the heart squeezes out and that the blood vessels feel. So for instance, you might have a blood pressure of 120 over 80. So when the heart squeezes, it feels 100 millimeters of pressure, if you will. Oh, and okay. relaxes, there's always a little bit of pressure left in there, and that's called your diastolic, which is 80. So there's always some pressure left when the heart relaxes. So the first number is what it happens when it squeezes, and the second number is what happens when it relaxes. So you said 120 over 80. Is that healthy blood pressure? That's considered textbook healthy blood pressure. That's what you typically see in the newspapers or in the textbooks and that kind of thing. 
120 over 80. The new guidelines came out recently and pressing us to really get people as close to that number as possible, 130 over 80. It used to be 140 over 90, but they saw that that really wasn't working. America was getting sicker and sicker. And so they pressed us down to try to get as close to 130 over 80 as we can. And that's quite a job. I have a question. So if the bottom number is greater than 80, what does that mean? Is that a concern? It is. Now, if you talk to many different cardiologists, let's suppose you talk to 100 of them, half of them might say, you know, the top number is the most important, you know, the systolic, the 120. And half of them might say, no, 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 I disagree. The bottom number is the most important, the 80. And I personally am a top number cardiologist. Um, we're, we're focused on the top number. Usually, if the top number is okay, usually the bottom number is okay. So, and all of our medications that we prescribe are usually to treat the, the top number. If the bottom number starts to go up, however, that's known as diastolic hypertension. And that could mean that your heart is not relaxing properly. Because if you remember, the top number is what happens when it squeezes. The bottom number is what happens when it relaxes. So if it's not relaxing properly, if it's stiff from years and years of eating the wrong foods and the improper lifestyle, stressed out, those kinds of things, then that bottom number can start to rise. And then we have to try to treat that most mm -hmm. times with medications. But here at Mars Cardiovascular, we're, we're going for lifestyle, and we've been getting some fantastic results. So the 120 over 80, is that typical for everyone, regardless of your age or your sex? Yeah, well, everybody's different. We can't do a cookie cutter for everyone, but that's kind of the average that we're shooting for, 120 over 80 or 130 over 80, okay? So many different permutations of all of that. But if you're just looking for a basic number to shoot for, I would say in this day and time, it's going to be 130 over 80. 130 over 80. Okay. okay. 130 over 80. That's the number that you want to shoot for. Very important also, before you check your blood pressure, you should always, always, always be seated for at least five minutes before you check it. The advice that I always give my patients is to get up in the morning and go urinate first. Because mm -hmm. if you have to urinate real bad, if you have a bladder full of urine, it's going to jack your blood pressure up. Any stress in your body, if you're in pain in the place, if you've you got to urinate, if you've got a headache, if you're upset, angry, it's going to jack your blood pressure up. So get up in the morning, urinate first, relieve the bladder. Second, put the blood pressure monitor on the arm and have it in place. And then third and the most critical piece, sit down, lean back in a chair for five minutes, calm and relax. Pray, meditate, do whatever you have to do to get still inside. And that allows the blood pressure to kind of come down to what it really is. Just like throwing a pebble in a lake. You want to wait until all the ripples calm down before you hit that blood pressure button. And then that's when you hit the button and you check your blood pressure. That's what's known as a resting blood pressure. Hmm. And that's the values that you see in the news and, and the articles and that kind of thing is resting blood pressure. Yeah, I chuckled a little bit when you go to your doctor's office. They don't have you do any of that. It's just rush, 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 rush. We don't either. Yeah. <laughs> we, we're trying to get patients in. We're trying to get them out. So we just slam them up there, check the blood pressure. Many times they've had a cigarette. <laughs> they've had coffee. <laughs> they've got a, they're rushing. They're behind. I'm running behind. It's the worst place in the world to check a blood pressure. So 
I literally never get excited. Well, I can't say never. I rarely get excited over high blood pressures in my office. I always have my patients go home and check home blood pressure readings for one entire week before I start making changes to their medications, unless the blood pressure is ungodly high. And then, of course, I will start a medication in the heartbeat. It's a time when medicines are important. But being at rest at home, much better than being in a stressful environment. Because most people nerves. White coat hypertension, where people, the blood pressures are fine when they're at home, the moment they walk in the doctor's office, whether I've got a white coat on or whether I've just, you know, got this shirt on right here, they just get anxious. And, and some of them have been in my office for 10 years, 15 years, and it's still, the blood pressure goes up. They know me well. It's just something that's kind of beyond the control for some mm. folks. I wanted to talk about some other ways your heart is assessed by your primary care physician. Sometimes they do blood work. They check your cholesterol. Can you talk a little bit about cholesterol levels and good cholesterol, bad cholesterol? You hear that term thrown out a lot. So what does that mean? Great question. Okay, here we go, everybody. LDL. L stands for lousy. So L stands for lousy. LDL is your bad cholesterol. And lousy, you want to go low. HDL stands for healthy and healthy, you want to go high. So your lousy cholesterol, typically we want to see that number less than 100. And your healthy cholesterol, we want that number to be high. So we want that number to be above 40. I also think of your HDL, your healthy cholesterol, as your dump trucks. You want as many dump trucks in your system as you possibly can because the HDL takes the bad cholesterol in the dump truck and dump puts it in the dump truck and you wind up pooping it out in your stool. So you want 40 dump trucks or more in your arsenal. 45 dump trucks, great. 55 dump trucks, 65, 75 dump trucks. And that actually helps to, studies have shown to help reduce your risk of a cardiovascular event for the future. Well, one of the biggest factors on heart health is the food we eat. What are some heart-healthy foods that are beneficial to the heart? And which foods should we avoid? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Here we go, folks. If it comes off a vine, a tree, or a bush, I would like for everyone to repeat after me, a vine, a tree, or a bush. If it comes off a vine, vine a, tree, a tree, or a bush. Okay then you can eat as much of it as you want. And of course, I don't want to make a blanket statement like Moderation, that. Moderation, of course. These foods that come off a vine, a tree, or a bush were put in the ground. You know, what? I don't know what your belief system or whatever, but something, Jehovah, God, Yahweh, Farah, universe, spirit, something created these things in the ground to heal our bodies. And so when you put that in your body, then that's going to provide the nutrients that you need, the magnesium and potassium and, and all the, the phytochemicals and the flavonoids and all these different things. I call it medicine. It's pure medicine. Two great examples are beets and arugula. Um, my hands are red. I had a beet today for dinner. <laughs> absolutely. Well, my beet smoothie is right in this right here. Oh, nice. Nice. <laughs> Actually, from this morning. I oh, have you guys are good. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, it is actually medication. My patients that really get on with beet smoothies, but I notice very significant drops in blood pressure. And when they're mm -hmm. consistent with it, that's when we can start to take them off their medications as their blood pressures come down nice. We just don't stop their medicine. But they send me a week of blood pressure readings, and lo and behold, those blood pressures start coming down beautifully. 
And so mm-hmm. if it's off a vine, a tree, or a bush, you can you can count on it. On the other side, if man has touched it, done anything to it, that's called processed. <laughs> and so you can't get anything more perfect than what comes off that vine. I like to keep it simple like that. There is no Pop-Tart tree. There's no Fruit Loop bush. Usually these things require ingredients. You know, when, when man starts messing around with it, man has to tell you what he did to it. And it should have just only a few ingredients. The only ingredients in kale is kale. Imagine <laughs> I'm that. I'm eating that tonight. Imagine I'm that. eating kale tonight. Eating <laughs> <laughs> carrots or carrots. And so when you start getting a label that's this big, so in general, if it comes off a vine or tree or bush, you can have as much of it as you want. If it has a big old label on it, then you need to read that label. Chances are you should not be consuming a lot of it. If it has eyes, ears, a nose, and a mother, okay, (laughs) then you should not be consuming a lot of it. And if it has stuff in it that you cannot pronounce. Mm, That's a good one. It does not belong in your body. I see. Okay. Okay. You talk about food. Yeah. Water, hydration. Let's talk about dehydration and the impact it has on the heart. Water. I call water uh, a vitamin. I call it vitamin W. And uh, water is probably the most important substance that your, your whole entire body needs in order to function. Literally, water is involved in every physiologic process that you have. And we walk around much of the day dehydrated because many of us, number one, just some of us don't like water. And, and number two, it's boring. It's not fizzy. It doesn't have all these different colors and everything to it. And so we are not drinking nearly enough water. And people ask me, how much water should we drink in a day? Should we use six to eight glasses a day? Of course, this is all variable. It depends on also what types of medical conditions you have. So somebody that has a weak heart and is in congestive heart failure has to be very careful with the amount of water that they drink. But what I typically tell people is that they should be checking their urine. And yes. if you check your urine, your urine should be light colored or should be nice and clear. And if you check your urine and it is dark and it is kind of uh, strong smelling, then this means that you are likely dehydrated and it's time for you to drink some more water. So look in the bowl, everybody. I know you don't want to. (laughs) Take a peek. (laughs) Take a peek. (laughs) Take a peek. Take a peek. It's you. It's you. Love who you are. It's your body. (laughs) Look at that bowl because your urine can give you some very important clues as to what is going on. Oh, and by the way, if you eat beets, your urine will turn red. So please don't get upset. And your bowels will also turn red too. I first time I, I I really loaded up on some beets, I was in for a rude awakening. <laughs> I was bleeding. I was concerned my first time. I thought I had a medical <laughs> condition and I Googled it and I even had to call my doctor the next day. The first time is very daunting when it happens. <laughs> it is shocking, literally. But now I know what to expect. So just come to expect that. And that's usually if you if you really hit the beats pretty hard which I'm encouraging people to do. We ought to have a national contest to see, well, we don't need to go there, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, count me in if that's the case. (laughs) I do like smoothies. I I might have to uh, 
temp maybe the beets because I do not like beets at all. I'm going to be very honest with you. I've tried beet juice mixed with other things, and it's just so overpowering to me. So, so Jenny, can I tell you, I was the same way when I first started. I got to be honest with you. I grew up in North Carolina. I call it North Kakilaki. Mm-hmm. I hated beets. And but when I found out how good they were for you and the fact that sugar is in beets, call them sugar beets. They actually make sugar from beets. Right. But when I found that out, interestingly enough, when you're looking for something, you will find it. If I'm looking for a fight, I'll find it. Right. Mm -hmm. After I found out that there was sugar in beets, I went back and I got a beet, took a chunk of a raw beet and ate it. And I was looking for the sugar. And there it was. I couldn't believe it. Yes. Mm. And so that switched me on completely. And it all depends on how you make it. Now, if you want to see how I make my smoothies, all you have to do is go to our Mars Cardio Facebook site. And there at the top, you'll see me. And there's a video of me in my kitchen making a beet smoothie. Okay. I'm, I'm going to check that out. Yeah, I'm sure. going to check that out. <laughs> I, I mean, I know they're good for you, but like I said, I just whew, I struggle. <laughs> Yeah, just the, my biggest advice to you when you're making a beet smoothie, it must be delicious. Never sacrifice on the taste. So always go with the, I use blueberries and bananas, okay? I love blueberries. Yeah, and they love you. Blueberries and bananas, and I just use water, or you can use almond milk, or you can use whatever water you want to. And you start off with that, and that makes it taste like literally a smoothie, because the bananas give it that nice sweet, and it gives it that smoothie feel. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then you slowly start adding in a little beet at a time, a little bit of beet at a time. And you put in the beet, and then you blend it, and then I want you to taste it. And I'll challenge anybody to do this. Taste it. You will not taste any beet in there. Okay. Okay. And then you add a little bit more beet and then you blend it and then you taste it again. You will not taste any beet. Now, when you get heavy into it, then you'll you'll start to taste the beets. But by that time, your taste buds will have started changing. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Ease up on it. Ease up. That's a process. Right. (laughs) Now, so we were talking about foods. I know at your practice, you have a nutritionist on board. Can you talk about how important that was to your practice? We've had a nutritionist on board, and we've also had my physician assistants who are not board certified in nutrition science, but they're very knowledgeable about eating from a vine, a tree, or a bush. We all belong to an organization known as the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. We always emphasize a whole food plant-based approach. But the importance of a nutritionist is a nutritionist has been trained specifically to give you medical advice as it relates to how you eat. And they can incorporate is more for them than just telling you to eat healthy. But if you have diabetes, then you should eat a certain way. If you have kidney disease, you should eat a certain way. If you've got hypertension or if you have GI issues, particularly like if you've got Crohn's disease or some type of inflammatory bowel disease, the nutritionist has been trained to tailor what the recommendations based off of what medical problems you have. And so that's the beauty of having a nutrition person or somebody that at least has special training in that. And uh, you don't get that in many doctor's offices. You find it in doctor's offices who feel passionate and know the importance of nutrition. And uh, nutrition is critical in maintaining good blood pressure and, and helping to reverse diabetes and helping to, if you're looking into losing weight, 
The answer, in my opinion, is not to go on all these diets. I'm not going to go into naming any particular one, but we don't use any diets here and our patients lose weight on a regular basis because our focus is getting well on the inside. And when that happens, the outside follows the inside. Yes. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Okay. So you talked about unhealthy eating. So talk about the domino effect weight gain, belly fat, high cholesterol, diabetes. So I have two questions. Number one, how does heart disease affect other body organs? If you have a weak heart, i.e. congestive heart failure, or the heart has been weakened by blockages in the blood vessels, the heart's main purpose is to deliver blood to the other organs, such as, and of course, the other important organ is the kidney. If the heart is not strong enough, then the fluid backs up and actually goes backwards in the cardiovascular system and it can affect the lung function because you wind up with fluid in the lungs. That's known as congestive heart failure. And therefore the lungs cannot function properly and get oxygen that it needs. And so you can imagine the rest of your bodily functions will also suffer too if they're not getting proper oxygenation. Every organ you have has to have uh, oxygen in order to function properly. When we talk about the kidneys, the heart is needed to pump blood forward to reach all the way down to where your kidneys are for the kidneys to work properly. And so if there's not enough pressure for that blood to reach the kidneys properly, then they start to malfunction. And then as the kidneys malfunction, they start to secrete substances, which throws the whole cycle into a tailspin and makes the situation actually worse. So it starts a cascade of things known as congestive heart failure. Once that happens, then your chances of having further cardiovascular issues goes way up, including repeat hospitalization. So your heart is critical for every bodily function that you have. And interestingly enough, every organ you have knows what's going on with the heart through chemical reactions on the inside of the body. They're always having a conversation. And so these things can be happening silently without you even knowing. And that's the reason why they call hypertension the silent killer, because it attacks your kidneys without you ever knowing it, attacks your brain without you even knowing it, it attacks the heart itself. You don't ever know it. And that's the reason why it's so important for people to know their numbers. Yes. Good information. Second question, the relationship between heart disease and diabetes can you talk a little bit about that? And also it's PCOS. I know that's a, a big one that a lot of people talk about. So can you talk about that a little bit as well? In my opinion, diabetes is now becoming the leading cause of heart disease in our country. It is so serious that they're predicting in the next few years that half of all Americans will either be diabetic or pre-diabetic. It is a pandemic that is sweeping across the world long before COVID ever got here. And it's something that we take very seriously here at Mars Cardiovascular Risk Reduction Center. We don't play around with diabetes. The excess sugar in one system, and more importantly, the amount of insulin that the body is making, you might have heard of something called insulin resistance. That's the hot term for 2024. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so when you have large amounts of insulin in the body, that can be a very inflammatory situation, creating a lot of inflammation. 
And it impacts every organ system that you have. It impacts your entire cardiovascular system. Uh, it sets you up for cancer, for Alzheimer's disease, for blindness, for neuropathy, all the types of diabetes you can possibly ever imagine. Erectile dysfunction, guys. The list goes on and on and on that insulin resistance mm -hmm. is associated with. And typically, this is the very first part of the process. You get insulin resistance first, and then you get prediabetes, and then you get full-fledged diabetes. The thing I want everybody to take away from this tonight is to always know your numbers. I would like for everyone that's listening to this to always know your A1C. This is the main lab test that tells you how close you are to diabetes. And I equate that to knowing, looking at your gas gauge. You know, you're in your car. You want to know if your needle is towards the right or if it's more kind of towards the left. And if it's getting more towards the left, towards empty, you know you got to do something. But you would never get in your car and never check your gas gauge. You should never be walking around and not know mm -hmm. your A1C. Because if your A1C is getting close to 5.7 or mm -hmm. is above 5.7, you will never know. It will be completely asymptomatic and you'll be officially in that pre-diabetic range, which is very dangerous. As opposed to if your A1C is down to you know 5.3, 5.4, 5.5, which puts you in the safe range. So everybody should know their A1C. If your A1C is safe, you are pre-diabetic. You're pre-diabetic. Are there things you can do to reverse the, your condition, to reverse things? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But first, I got to ask a question. I always ask my patients when they say, you know, I'm pre-diabetic. I ask them, have you ever heard of anybody being pre-pregnant? You know, like a little bit pregnant, like teeny bit. Wow. Pregnant, you know. Mm, pre-pregnant. You know, I like that. Okay. No, you, you're either pregnant or you're not. <laughs> And my opinion is you either have diabetes or you don't. And if you are pre-diabetic, you are there. You don't uh -huh. need to wait for the official diagnosis. You are in some trouble. Good news, you ask me, can you reverse it? And the absolute answer is yes, especially type 2 diabetes. Now, there are three types of diabetes out there. There's type 1, which is when you get it when you're young. And that's typically when the body makes antibodies to its own pancreas and destroys its own pancreas for any given reason. And you wind up on insulin for the rest of your life, beginning when you're like a teenager. That's type one. And that's something that, unfortunately, that's what you're stuck with for the rest of your life. Type two, though, is adult onset diabetes. And that's what 90% of all America is type two. And that is indeed reversible. And finally, type 3 diabetes. Have you heard of that? No. No, this is new. Type 3 diabetes is associated with Alzheimer's disease. I, I imagine everybody that's listening, their mouths have fallen open just like yours did, Raquel. It says it's Alzheimer's disease and it is insulin resistance of the brain. Many people are completely unaware that this process is impacting them for the long term and that's the reason why it is critical that you know your A1C. And we, what we're going to talk about next is how to reverse your prediabetes. Wow. Okay. So when I mentioned PCOS, is that insulin resistance? You hear that term, PCOS. Polycystic ovarian syndrome, 
Right. Okay. Is that insulin resistance or is that something different? Strongly encourage you to get with your GYN or your primary care physician that knows some things about PCOS, but it is a metabolic disorder. So you have high triglycerides, you have insulin resistance, and many times you find people with PCOS on metformin as a part of their treatment because it does impact the body the whole metabolism of the body. So they are at increased risk for cardiovascular events for the future and need to be super aggressive at all of the lifestyle changes that we talk about. They need to be aggressive with moving to a more whole foods, plant-based lifestyle. They need to be getting the regular physical activity, stress reduction, sleep. I can't tell you how important all these things are. Even hanging around the right people, what the blue zones, they're known as your tribe. And we can talk mm-hmm. more about the blue zones, but the people you hang around have a definite impact on your health. And so you have to be careful about, uh, my mother used to always say, you sleep with dogs, uh-huh. you get fleas. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've heard that before. <laughs> Insulin resistance, what exactly is that? Describe what that is. What does that mean? Yeah, it's a good question. Insulin resistance, what that is, is when your tissues become resistant to the insulin that your pancreas is making. One of the top reasons why people become insulin resistant is because of saturated fat that is in their diet. So how that works is if you eat a lot of saturated fat, typically in uh, meat, and processed food. Uh, Do either one of you know the number one consumed saturated fat in America? I'm going to say, is it bacon? That's a typical response. Gina, what do you think? Hamburger? This ground beef? Good, good thoughts. Okay. The number one consumed saturated fat in America is drum roll, please. We love cheese. We love cheese. Cheese and eggs, cheese and grits, bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit in the morning, cheese on a pizza for lunch. Cheese is the American way. I love cheese. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. I love cheese. Who doesn't love cheese? But it is causing major problems across the country. So when we eat diets high in saturated fat, here's what causes the insulin resistance. The saturated fat goes into our cells and fills the cells full of saturated fat. Now, if a cell is full, for instance, if I have a muscle cell that is full of saturated fat, when I eat something that has sugar in it, the sugar has to get into the cell in order for the cell to use it as energy. But if the cell is full of saturated fat, the sugar has nowhere to go. It can't get in the cell. And if it can't get in the cell, then that's what's called insulin resistance. Insulin being secreted by the pancreas to push the sugar Uh into the cell, but the sugar can't get in the cell. And so it's resisting the insulin. It's resisting the insulin. And when that happens, your muscles become resistant to insulin. Your liver becomes resistant. That's called fatty liver. The pancreas also can become saturated with fat. And that's when the pancreas starts to shut down. And that's called insulin resistance of the pancreas. So, and then guess what? The pancreas says, hey, I know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to make more insulin. That's all I'm going to do. If the tissues are resisting me, I'll just make more insulin. So therefore, the insulin levels go up and up and up. up. Meanwhile, the little tissues are just shutting down and shutting down and shutting down. 
And the more insulin that's being made, you're getting a lot of inflammation in the system. It's causing all kinds of problems, including problems with the brain, leading to Alzheimer's disease. Wow. Type 3 diabetes. We learned something new today, Regina. Wow. I see people out there saying, oh, yeah, diabetes runs in my family. Oh, my gosh. No, uh, it is not in your DNA. It's in your dinner. Yes. Now, one of my friends, Dr. Morris, has said that her doctor had told her if she has to have cheese to do white cheese to avoid regular cheddar cheese. If you're going to do cheddar, do white cheddar, do your Parmesan. Is that true or is it all the same? I got to tell you, so I'm not a nutritionist. I'm sure there are healthier versions of cheese out there, I'm sure. But I have to think at the end of the day, we typically, whatever we're eating, we're not eating a little of it. We're eating a lot of it. And I got to tell you, anything that's white has been processed. It comes out the ground white. Okay. And if it's white, that means that man has touched it and done something to it. Ah. Things should have colors to it. And that's the reason why we talk about eating the rainbow. You want to eat different colors your plate should have multiple, multiple colors on it. And if it's white on your plate, that's suspect. So it should not look anemic. That's what I tell my kids. We do not want an anemic plate. <laughs> we need to have greens and orange and reds on the plate. So yes, plate should, your plate <laughs> okay. should look like a rainbow. And think of it that way too. Food as medicine. You're going to hear a lot about that, by the way. The White House is very much into this food as medicine movement. We are also very much involved in the food as medicine movement. Mm -hmm. And and so, yeah, you're going to hear a lot about that. Okay. Okay. Next thing we want to talk about, everyone's favorite, is exercise. So I know you have an exercise program at your practice. Can you share why exercise is so important? You know, there's two things that I can tell you that work like 100%. Two things. One is exercise. Now, we don't use exercise in my office. That's a curse word. So we don't use profanity here because nobody likes to exercise. We call it instead physical activity here. Any kind of movement, physical movement, I'm talking Zumba, line dancing, roller skating, you know, biking, hiking, Movement, movement. I'm standing while I'm talking to you right now. So any kind of movement, movement, movement is is important because exercise has that negative connotation. You got to go to the gym and you got to sweat and you got to burn it out. And it leaves people not really wanting to do it. And so I say Zumba, line dance, pole dance. I don't care what it is as long as it involves some kind of movement that gets the cardiovascular system pumping. So the first thing is it works 100% of the time, is physical activity. It works different in different people. Some people are going to get more benefits. Some people not so much as much as another person, but they're going to benefit in some way. Okay. The second thing that works 100% of the time are vegetables. You cannot go wrong if it comes off a vine, a tree, or a bush Different medical situations change that to a certain degree. If you are in in stage renal disease and on dialysis, they're going to always caution you against foods that have high potassium and phosphorus and those kinds of things. So there are different medical conditions where this would not apply. But in general, you just cannot go wrong. It's all about the fiber. That's going to be stuck in our head now. (laughs) That's going to be the title of this episode. Vine, tree, bush. (laughs) Yeah, you cannot go wrong. Love it. Love it. Vine, a tree, or a bush. 
So there are different medical conditions where this would not apply, but in general, you just cannot go wrong. It's all about the fiber. Okay. So what's the best cardio um, exercise you should do? You mentioned a couple of things, but which one do you feel is like the best? The best cardio activity you could possibly do is one that you enjoy. Walking, if that's what floats your boat, then so be it. Your goal is to get so that you are not able to sing a song. You are not able to complete a full sentence without having to take a deep breath. That's the goal? Oh, and that, okay. That okay. Any movement. <laughs> if all three of us are walking right now and we're able to talk like we're talking right now, we're walking too slow. But if on the other hand, if you are all walking right now and I, mm. I can't breathe, I mean, I'm struggling, that's too fast. But we need to be right in the middle where we cannot complete a full sentence without taking a deep breath or you cannot complete a song. You cannot sing a song. That's called moderate physical activity. And that's, think of it, your heart is going, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh my God, this is so good. Thank you. Oh, I love it. Your heart can't get enough of that. And oh. that's where you start to get the blood pressure's coming down. You start getting the cholesterol's coming down. The blood sugar's coming down. Your heart wants to be challenged and um, it needs it like it needs air. Okay. So this is a question from our listener. And I think you answered this somewhat. Do you have to get your heartbeat elevated for exercise to count? What is better, strength training or cardio? My husband only does strength training and calls treadmill or those, he has in quotes, those machines okay. soft. All right, the answer to that question is, um, <laughs> it's not so much about the heart rate as it is about your breathing rate, the breathing rate. So we get back to uh, what we call the rate okay. of perceived exertion. And so instead of people looking at their little watches, because see, I have my little uh, smart watch here also, and I use it. I use it. And it's very useful. But many people don't have watches or smart watches, especially our older population of people. And, and it could care less about, you know, mm-hmm. Apple Watch or anything like that. So we have to go instead by the breathing rate. So while you're exercising, and what I do is whenever I'm exercising, which we recommend five days a week of moderate physical activity, meaning breathing like this for a total of 30 minutes of breathing like this. Okay. For instance, let's suppose that I'm exercising and, uh, excuse me, I'm moving. Yes. Physical activity. And I'm I'm kickboxing and I have a little kickboxing set up at home. I'm kickboxing. My goal is to get to the point where I'm breathing like this. And once I get to this point, then I maintain that pace for as long as I possibly can. Usually when I'm at that level, my heart rate has is, is already started to go up. So that's when the heart rate starts to go up. So you don't have to worry about, is my heart rate going up high enough? It's going to be up if you are breathing like this, because you are exerting the amount of physical activity to get it there. Okay? So I want people to focus more on this rate okay. of perceived exertion and use your heart rate. If you've got a heart rate monitor, okay, great, use it but you'll find that it correlates very well with how you're breathing. And so therefore, if there's one day where you don't have your heart rate monitor, oh my God, I don't have my Apple Watch. I can't go exercise. No, yes, you can. Just use your own breathing rate. 
So breathing right. So strength training, lifting weights, that's fine to do. But the cardio, you want to work on the breathing rate and making sure that's up. Yes. I, I advise most of my patients, I would like them to do 70, 60 to 70% aerobic physical activity, meaning breathing at a rate that you cannot, uh, you can't complete a song or uh, you can't complete a full sentence without having to take a deep breath. So 60 to 70% of the time should be aerobic. And then 30 to 40% of the time should be strength training. Now, as we get older, strength training becomes even more and more important. I'm talking when you're 60s, when you're 70s, when you're 80s, when you're in your 90s, strength training actually will make you live longer. So when you're able to maintain your muscle mass and maintain the muscle mass that you have, also it helps to strengthen your bones and it makes you more stable so you're less likely to fall and break a hip. As we get older, the strength training piece becomes more and more important. But here in America, our aerobic strength, this is what's known as the breathing thing I was talking about, that's called your aerobic strength versus your physical strength. Our aerobic strength is just horrible here in the United States, and we really need to focus more on our aerobic strength. Good information. Thank you. That was a great question. Mm -hmm. If you have mobility issues, what are some things that you can do for cardiovascular health? Mobility issues are very common in my population of people that uh, are at 70 and 80 and 90, and they have joint and back problems and knee problems. Um, So I'm a YouTube-aholic. I'm, I'm on YouTube's 24-7 if I could. I love them. You can get wonderful videos on chair aerobics, which is awesome for people that have back and knee and joint and instability problems. So you're seated and you're able to do actually chair jumping jacks and all kinds of things in a chair. You don't have to be dressed in a particular way. Don't have to go to a gym. Don't have to belong to anything. Don't have to pay anything. It's just free. It's right there. Also, water aerobics, wonderful physical activity people have back and joint and knee problems. And everybody in the water has back and knee and joint problems. And that's the reason why they're in there. So I strongly recommend water aerobics or chair aerobics and to go on YouTube and you can find all of these different weight bearing exercises that you can do for various body ailments that you may have. Movement is literally the holy grail. It's the key to youth. When my patients come to me, if they can blink, I can figure out something. There's no pill. There's no tablet. There's no drink this quick fix thing. It is regular, moderate physical activity that restores the body's youth as you get older, particularly. So, you know, many people will argue that they don't have time because, you know, most people are like, oh, I'm so busy. So what solution do you have? Now, I know you've mentioned the five days a week, 30 minutes, but if you get someone like, I just don't have time, I'm too busy. What's the solution? The reason why you want to do it. Many of us won't exercise or get physical activity because we just don't have a good reason. Um, and when you don't have a good why, then it becomes something you have to do. But when you change it into something you get to do, it's a whole different story. That's a big obstacle for people. They feel like they have to go exercise. So that's key number one, because if you get to do something, you'll just do it. And so it's important to tie in your physical activity with something you get to do. Case in point, if I tell you to go and build a house, I want you to build a house across the street. And you go, no, I don't want to build a house. I, I don't know how to build a house. But if I tell you that a tornado came and ripped the house away from this family, a mother, father, and their three children, 
And will you please help us build a house? You go, oh, well, of course. Sure, I'll bring some logs. I'll do something. Yeah. And not only that, but you'll come back to that house every single day. Every day you'll come back. Even if you're tired, you're going to come back because you want to see that family in that house. And that's because we change this in something that you get to do, something you want to do. You will go back over there and you will find <laughs> a way to get over there to make sure that house gets built. That's the same thing with your body. Yeah. It has to be something that you look forward to do. Now, point number two is the first point is turn it into something you get to do, not something you have to do. Point number two, start off slow and easy. I said five days a week, 30 minutes each of those days. For somebody that doesn't even get off the couch, which is a lot of folks, and I'm not passing judgment, but that's just the truth, just two minutes a day, just to get started, one minute, 30 seconds, it doesn't matter. Start wherever it takes you, wherever you need to start. Okay. And don't get ego involved. Ego says, if I can't do 30 minutes, if I can't push it and sweat it and grind and bump and I, all the things I see on TV and get skinny, then I'm not going to get started. Uh, also, our egos get us wrapped up into mm. what we used to be able to do. I used to, I used to be able to do a 5K. Mm. I'm going to do this 5K because I used to, used to, yeah. used to. And of course, we go out and we fail. And that sets up the chain reaction, so we just don't do it anymore. So first things first, choose a why, an effective why. And second, slow and easy. You're not trying to impress anybody. You're not trying to join a marathon team. All you're just trying to do is move. Be grateful that you can move. You got feet. <laughs> Amen. That's true. Mm -hmm. Good information. Good information. Let's talk about mental health and how that impacts heart disease. And if you want to talk about, I think it's cortisol, if I'm saying that correctly, how that plays a role in heart disease. There's something called broken heart syndrome, which is a real thing. And this is a situation where, let's suppose I just had dinner with my best friend, right? And we just went out for a nice dinner. We had a great time. But the next day I get a call, he's been killed in, a, in an automobile accident. Oh my God. I just had dinner with him. I, he was fine. Well, what do you mean he's gone? That trauma can actually set up a cascade within the body and cause the heart to weaken, cause pain in the chest. You wind up going to a hospital. They do the blood test. Mm -hmm. It looks just like a heart attack. They take you to the cath lab to check to see where the blockages are in your blood vessels. They don't see any blockages. And the heart is weak as it can possibly be. That's called broken heart syndrome. And then after about two or three or four months after the kind of the psychological, emotional trauma has, has worn down some a bit, they repeat the ultrasound. And lo and behold, the heart muscle has returned back to its normal strength. So we do know that stress has a dramatic impact on the cardiovascular health of, uh, of everybody. You talk about cortisol. Cortisol is known as the stress hormone. And so back in the days of the caveman, when the saber-toothed tiger was coming at you, you were either going to have dinner or you were going to be dinner. <laughs> yeah. Because you are got to fight or you have to run. And they go to your liver and cause your liver to release sugar so you can fight or you can run because sugar is fuel. So either you kill the saber-toothed tiger, so now you got dinner, or you become dinner, so it doesn't matter anymore. The cortisol levels go down either way. The stress is over. 
But that's not the case today in the United States because we have our cell phones and we have TV and we have all these stresses that keep our cortisol levels high all day, every day, all the way up to the point we go to sleep. And then we can't get to sleep, which causes even more stress, which makes us you know, sleep even less. Therefore, the next day sets up for even higher cortisol levels. Cortisol levels at the long term, they wreak havoc on your entire system, your cardiovascular system. It weakens the system. It sets you up for chronic inflammatory problems. This is your risk of autoimmune diseases. It has so many negative effects on your body. And that's the reason why it's important for us to address that. I belong to an organization known as the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. And this is one of the pillars that we address, and that is the stress that we are undertaking. And we talk about this on a regular basis here in my office. If you come to see me, that's a part of your visit, is that we look at what types of stressors that you are enduring in your day-to-day life and how are you managing those. I personally, I meditate. I meditate twice a day. Before I go to bed, some will call that prayer. Some will call that meditation. Whatever it is, it's getting still. It's getting quiet. I've been doing this for years and it's important. I have to be able to center myself and get still and get present and so that I can do the best I can and be the best doctor that I can possibly be. So stress is a huge factor. And if you don't address it, it will come out in some form. Your body does not handle stress well. So you'll end up having pain in your chest or you have pain in your neck or you end up having palpitations. We are getting a flood of patients in my office with hearts racing, palpitations. They don't know why. You know, literally, I probably saw about three or four people today just for palpitations alone, men and women. And and typically we're getting more women than men, but I tell you, we're getting a lot of men coming in now, having difficulty dealing with all the stress of today. It's real. So part of your assessment, do you look at anxiety disorder or mood disorder, depression? Do you do that type of assessment and maybe refer them to see a a therapist? Is that something that you do in your office? I think maybe more than most doctors. I don't know about that. I don't know if I can say that, but, but just because it's just so critical. And yes, if they need help and I know they need help, I will ask them to be sure they check with their primary care doctor first. All right. But many patients, you know, just from the first 20 minutes of conversation, when they tell you, I cry all day long, that's all I do is cry. I got out of bed today at at one o'clock. I haven't showered in the last uh, week. I mean, these are all telltale signs. These are not normal behaviors and really need a closer looking at than just, Mm. well, why don't you go and exercise some? Why don't you eat some vegetables? Sometimes medications are very important to use. And they serve a purpose. And so I'll often refer them back to the primary and I'll call the primary and say, look, Ms. Jones really is struggling and she may need to be on some medicine for a little bit. And I leave that decision to the primary care, somebody that specializes in that. But that's a big part of the assessment here at Mars Cardiovascular for sure. Dr. Morris, when you were talking about high levels of stress and cortisol, I had a situation several years ago. I had a full-blown panic attack. And I had never had one before. So when it happened, I didn't know if I was having a heart attack or what happened. I was driving and I felt like a really intense, very heavy, intense pressure rising from my feet up. 
to my facial area, it was full blown. I went to the ER, everything checked out fine. And I remember that day that my muscles felt like they were on fire under my skin, my neck muscles, my shoulder, and it stayed like that all day. And I just felt like I was going to jump out my skin. I took myself back to the hospital that morning. Of course, everything checked out fine. One of the nurses was like, well, you might be premenopausal. You might want to check with your doctor. But I just felt like I was going to jump out my skin. And I just couldn't believe why my muscles burning. Literally felt like a match under my skin. So that's when I talked to my primary care. And she was like, I think you had a panic attack. Now, at the time, my husband was sick with cancer again. So I can definitely tell people the effect that stress because I probably would say I thought I was doing pretty good because I can carry a lot. I can I can smile all day and you never know what's wrong with me because that's just how I am. I go into survival mode. But it was wrecking havoc. She was like, okay, let me refer you to a heart doctor because I had a full breakdown. My heart was racing. I couldn't calm down. And I was just like, what is happening? So I get there and they were like, well, you know, we did all these tests and everything checks out fine. And then the other portion was I developed food allergies. My immune system became complete trash. Every single thing that I was putting in my mouth, either my throat was tightening up or I was breaking out in huge whelps. And I could not figure out what was going on. So, you know, I'm reading stuff online and I ran across stress can affect the immune system. So I talked to my primary care and she was like, yeah, you know, stress can do a lot. Could you hit a little bit about stress, just what it can do to the immune system? I started exercise. I got a trainer and I recently had my food allergy test done again which the last time I had it was 2019. And I now came back zero for everything because my stress level reduced. So can you talk a little bit about that? I think you summed it up. That's how powerful stress is in terms of the body. We should never underestimate the impact that stress has on our entire immune system. So when cortisol levels are elevated, we get on steroids, bodybuilders, it's to help their muscles get big and they have all these changes that happen. And sure, their muscles get humongous, but they pay the price down the line. They become impotent, eventually over a period of time causes cardiovascular problems such that they lose blood supply to their limbs and they can lose their limbs causes vascular dementia so they can go crazy. <laughs> it's a big deal in the bodybuilding world of taking these, these anabolic steroids. But you can imagine it has the same impact on us. When we have chronic cortisol elevation, it weakens the immune system over a period of time, and it sets you up for autoimmune disease. It sets you up for infections and not to mention everything else that it does to the cardiovascular system. It causes your vessels to constrict. It leads to a lot of inflammation in your body in general. It leads to a lot of acid production in your body and your body function in an acidic environment. Not to mention it just makes life miserable. And I have taken care of plenty of patients who have come in just today. As a matter of fact, I had one, maybe two, but one for sure, 
a young lady who came in with the heart racing. She didn't know why. You know, most likely a panic attack. But those panic attacks are real. I'm telling you. They are very real. You will never find me blowing off a panic attack. Those things are real. I hope to never have one. But still, it's important that patients that are having these panic attacks make sure that they talk with their primary care physician, first of all. But you have to deal with how you perceive stress and how you deal with it. And it has to be dealt with in a very, very intentional way. And what I mean by that is it sometimes dealing with the stress can cause more stress. It's the case in point, Raquel and I were talking about the fact that we had all these technical difficulties. One way you could think about that is, oh God, why yeah. has this happened to us? I mean, that's a stressful response. Or, oh, well, they happened to us to make us better. The mindset, oh, it's helping us. It's, it's, that it's mindset, happened to make yes. us stronger. Mm-hmm. Now we're even stronger than we were before. And on top of that, we figured out a different way to do it. So it actually it improves. Right. Two different mindsets, mm-hmm. right? One is is kind of a, why us? Why is this happening to us? Versus mm-hmm. looking at adversity as something that is needed for us to get better. And uh, that's how I always choose to look at adversity. We have to have adversity in order for us to improve. In order for a muscle to grow, you have to put it under some kind of stress. Yes. All right. That's true. Not overwhelming stress. But you never want to find yourself comfortable, you know, just completely comfortable where everything is just because then your mind's not clicking, you're not moving, you're not doing anything. You actually do want to have some kind of adversity in your life that creates the growth that the muscle gets when you create an adverse situation called resistance. resistance. I like that. I like that. Mm, That's good. Can you talk a little bit about the role of sleep on heart disease? Because I know you've mentioned how important it is to get rest, but how many hours of sleep should we be getting at night? A, A general rule is six to nine hours of sleep. Sleep is absolutely critical for all of your bodily functions. And uh, we underestimate how important sleep is so dramatically. We in the United States have become work, work, work. We are a a country where we work hard. And little do we know that it is actually causing so many medical problems across our country. It contributes to cardiovascular disease, obviously. It contributes to raising your blood pressure, raising your heart rate over the long period, which leads to congestive heart failure, kidney disease. If you're not sleeping properly, you're going to be tired all the time. So therefore, you're more likely to reach for a unhealthy food, something that is quick, fast food, TV dinner, something out of a bag, something you can eat with your hands versus something you can eat with a fork or a spoon. Be eating as much of your food with a fork or a spoon because it will slow you down. Also, it impairs your cognitive function. You cannot possibly be nearly as effective. I call it you paying Guido. Guido is a sleep lord. You borrow $20 from Guido, you pay Guido back. You borrow another $20, you pay Guido back. As long as you keep paying Guido back, you're fine. But if you borrow $20 from Guido and then you borrow another 20 the next night and another 20, Guido's going to come knocking. (laughs) Guido's going to come knocking and you're just going to have to pay it all back. You're going to collapse. You're going to crash. Guido's going to get that payback. And so... Ever since I started getting more sleep myself, I went to medical school and they taught us how to stay up all night. It was a badge of honor. Little did we ever right. have people's <laughs> lives in our hands and we're trying to do this rite of passage. I, I'm convinced that I 
poor. I scored so poorly on, on many of my tests just simply because of the fact I was sleep deprived. Looking at why people around me were doing so well in the, and they didn't seem to have to study so hard. I'm I'm positive those people were getting sleep. Very important. And yes. um, so I changed that about my own life probably about five years ago, and it has been night and day. And sleep is a superpower. So seven to nine hours, and the more physical activity you get, the better sleep you get. So wife works out hard. When I work out hard, I go to sleep. Now, a lot of people, Dr. Morris, have snoring issues, and some people probably have sleep apnea and not really know it. What's the relationship between that and heart disease, especially a lot of men snore really bad, but they don't do anything about it? (laughs) Sleep apnea is one of the most underdiagnosed conditions, I think, in America, and it definitely does contribute to hypertension. It contributes to elevated heart rates. It continues to stress levels. It Untreated sleep apnea can lead to erectile dysfunction. Um, mm. The list goes on. Certainly, it leads to improper eating, which leads to diabetes. Absolutely. And not to mention, you're just a crabby person throughout the day. So, <laughs> Get your sleep. <laughs> Get your sleep. If you are snoring, please talk to your doctor by getting a home sleep study and get diagnosed and get properly treated. The CPAP masks are a bear to deal with, but now they have the mouth guards. The dentist can fit you with a special mouth guard that you can do instead of the CPAP at night or the BiPAP. And if that doesn't work, there's another device called the Inspire device, which is a electronic device that's under the skin, goes up into the back of the tongue, and it moves the tongue out of the way at nighttime. And those are for people that cannot tolerate the CPAP. But uh, mouth guards are now becoming very popular because they don't have that mask over top of their faces. And some people get a lot of benefit from them. So, But it has to be treated. Talk to your primary care doctor about it. The uh, lung doctor is also the pulmonologist, the one that really specializes in sleep. You may have a sleep disorder. There are like 80 plus sleep disorders. There are many different sleep disorders. You may need to have a full sleep evaluation by a sleep certified, uh, a pulmonologist uh, that's certified or a PCP that's certified in uh, sleep medicine. Let's talk about some unhealthy habits. I'm talking about smoking, drinking, drugs. We actually had a listener ask the question, my teenager vapes. Is vaping safer than smoking cigarettes? I read that it's more dangerous than smoking. So can you talk about vaping, cigarette smoking, the effects it has on the heart? Absolutely. It is considered by many people that, that people that vape, they figure that they're smoking in this vapor, so therefore it's better for them than smoking cigarettes. I think that anything on this planet is probably better than smoking cigarettes. Smoking anything in your body, whether it's marijuana, whether it's cigarettes, whether you just have your head over top behind a a car breathing in fumes, it's all the same thing. You're smoking in dirt and particles into your lung, setting yourself up for emphysema and asthma and all kinds of medical problems down the line. So I don't encourage anybody to smoke anything. Now, vaping... I think is effective if it's used as a bridge to quit smoking and get off the cigarettes. Children vaping is a bad idea for sure. It is definitely not healthy for children or young people or anybody to be vaping for the long term. You are, again, breathing in oil particles and all types of things, hot gases into your lungs, which sets you up for 
different types of infections and also respiratory Ill, uh, problems, wheezing over the long term. The kids out there that think that this is safe, it absolutely is not safe. I don't encourage anybody to be smoking anything into their lung. You're going to pay the price for it somewhere down the line. We want to talk about culture, race, and special populations. This is a question I have. Is there a difference pertaining to the anatomy of the heart, structural differences? If you're a man versus a woman, is your heart size different? And if, say, if you're African-American or Asian, is your heart different? And how does that guide treatment? That's a good question. You know, I've heard that there are and I understand that there are differences between a, a man's heart and a woman's heart. Obviously, women are going to, in general, be smaller, okay? So therefore, blood vessels, in general, are going to be smaller than in a man. And so if you already have smaller blood vessels, then if you get cholesterol buildup in your blood vessels, it's going to affect more of the hole through which the blood has to go through. So women definitely are impacted to a, a greater degree than men, especially as you get older, with unhealthy behaviors that lead to cardiovascular disease. And that's the reason why we say that heart disease is the number one killer of women. So the anatomy plays a role? Somewhat of a role. It actually does. Okay. In terms of ethnicity, honestly, I don't know of any studies that show that ethnicity plays a role in the structure of the heart and how the heart functions. But certainly... Black and brown folks are at a higher risk simply because of the social determinants of health and the health disparities, increased risk compared to your average population for getting cardiovascular problems that really needs to be a focus. And it's a focus certainly for this office, but any office has to know and understand that there is a difference. If you're black or brown, that there's some obstacles that the average person does not have to endure. And that it's a serious problem across the country. So can we talk a little bit about Black women and heart disease? Why is the rate higher? I would have to say it's the same situation as with Black and brown folks in general. In general, there are some genetic factors that go into this, but we do know that your environment plays a role and it can actually change your genetics. Let's suppose you have two sisters. They're African-American and Black, and they're twins. And you take one sister, they have the identical DNA, and you take one of them and you move one close to a power plant, and you take the other twin and you move them out in the country. Which twin is going to get cancer first? The one that's close to a power plant, even though you've got identical DNA, exactly the same DNA, but you've changed the environment. We call this death by zip code. Depending on what part of town you live in, uh, mm -hmm. there are certain places where there's a 10-year difference when you live in the western part of town versus the eastern part. I hope well is that there's a nine-year difference depending on what area code you live in. And that's in a, in a very close proximity. Some cities are even more. I don't mean to name Hopewell specifically, but New York, Virginia, everybody has places where it's death by zip code. And if you live in a particular area, it's all about your environment. And access to health care, I'm sure, and economic status, all of that. All your of that. access to healthy walking, uh, also food deserts, big in the black and brown community, access to real food. There are certain counties that have no drugstores within, you know, 10, 15 mile radius. You have to go outside of the city in order to get real food. And fortunately, we see a higher proportion 
of these food deserts in black and brown communities. There's some design behind that. It's just the reality that, that some of these situations are set up this way. And it's a situation that we have to deal with as black and brown folks. It's important for us to take control of our own health. And that moves us back to eating these vegetables and taking our health seriously, stress reduction, the people that we hang around. If the people you're hanging around want to stay in the old ways of going and getting the fried chicken and going to getting the fat back and the hog jaws, stuff I grew up with, it was killing us back then and it's killing us today. Friends, it's time to get some people that are thinking more along the lines of eating more plants. And actually the people in black and brown communities, we are the largest demographic of folks moving over to vegetarian and eating vegan. So that's the good news is that we're that's starting good. to wake up a little bit. Vegetables that's are the way. Good. They've always will be the way. They always have been the way. Plant-based all the way. Don't necessarily have to go vegan. There's actually some unhealthy vegans out there too. There's some unhealthy vegetarian. Beer is vegan. Fries are vegan. You said you said what? French fries are vegan. Just because you're <laughs> vegan doesn't mean okay. that you that you, that you're healthy. Depends on the quality of the right. food that you're eating. So that's where we're falling short here in the United States. We have a serious, serious fiber deficiency. Our goal is to get six to eight servings of fruits and vegetables in your body every single day. Okay. What are some high fiber fruits and vegetables? Oh my gosh, raspberries loaded up with fiber. Uh, and really, again, a vine, a tree, or a book. Think about it. That's what's holding mm -hmm. the celery up there like that. That's what's holding the cucumber up there. That's what's holding the carrot. It's the structure of the carrot. So anything that's just sitting straight up like that and comes out of the ground, that's golden. Lower your insulin levels, lower your blood sugar levels, golden. lower your cholesterol levels. It calms the body on the inside. So it lowers the internal stress inside of you, lowers your inflammation levels. You're feeding your gut bacteria, your microbiome, which impacts your moods. I just had a session on this here in the office today. We had a whole session on the importance of the gut microbiome. And that is bacteria in your colon that feed on fiber. If you had millions of dogs in your colon, you would feed them every day. And you do. They're called bacteria. And you need to feed them their little alpo, which is called fiber. Critical. Critical. Fiber is very important. Now, are blueberries high in fiber? Because I love blueberries. Love blueberries. <laughs> You'll see my smoothie <laughs> has blueberries and bananas. There's the fiber in it. That's good stuff. I want to talk a little about pregnant women and the mortality rate. And I know that's on the rise, especially for Black women. Can you talk a little bit about preeclampsia and what that looks like? That is so serious. I've had personal family members that have been affected by that. But that is on the rise for sure, particularly in the Black and Brown uh, women. It's because, in general, when we're going into the pregnancy, we're already unhealthy. Already have high blood pressure, already have obesity, already pre-diabetic, heading into the pregnancy. And pregnancy, it makes everything in you worse. And so you already have these pre-existing conditions and you get pregnant, it magnifies everything. And then preeclampsia sets you up for a kidney disease and even death if you go to full-blown eclampsia. So black and brown women are dying at higher rates than the non-African-American population. And it has, again, everything to do with the social determinants of health that we talk about, the health disparities, and all the more reason why we 
in the black and brown community, we have to take our health back. We have to assume full responsibility for this and change the lifestyle such that if we stay ready, we don't have to get ready. Preeclampsia, that is high blood pressure that women get when they're pregnant for our listeners, in case they don't know what that is. The last thing I want to ask about women is menopause or premenopause and estrogen levels. I know that can lead to heart palpitations. I don't know if a lot of women know about that. When they're going through menopause, lots of strange things happen to their body and they think they have a heart condition. Um, so can you talk about that? I guess the role of estrogen and how that decreases and affects the heart? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, anybody that's going through these changes definitely needs to talk with the PCP or the GYN. But estrogen plays an important role when you're young. It actually helps you to control your cholesterol. And I remember a long time ago, there was a big push that everybody should be on estrogen. We've actually been giving estrogen. This was years and years and years ago until we found out that actually it's not something that we should be endorsing people to, to actually take extra estrogen for cardiovascular. Now, of course, as you get to be postmenopausal, estrogen obviously has great benefits of taking internal estrogen or even estrogen creams. And this is where I always have to defer back to somebody that specializes in this kind of thing. But obviously, as we get older too, things like breast cancers and those kinds of things are very responsive to estrogen. So when you're taking estrogen products, it can predispose you to developing breast cancer. And if you have cardiovascular problems, breast cancer will make it worse, depending on the type of receptors and stuff that you have. So the game does change as you get older in terms of your need for estrogen. But nowadays, they have more and more products that don't require you to take estrogen internally. You can take it transvaginally. They're creams and so that you don't have to take it internally into your body. But this is where I have to defer to my GYN colleagues. Take it very seriously. In regards to stroke, Black women have a 50% higher risk of stroke than white women. Do you think that's because of higher stress levels, or is there something else that's causing the failure? I think it's a combination. I think it is due to higher stress levels. I think that also, again, just as with preeclampsia, we have the pre-existing condition earlier in our lifetime, many times go untreated. And then when you throw the uh, stress that is involved with uh, being black or brown, you're already at high risk at a younger age. And so you're going to be more likely to have strokes at a younger age, 40 years old, 50 years old, or even younger. One of the things that we we don't place enough emphasis on is that we, you can get cardiovascular disease when you're in your teens. People don't realize that you can get little fatty streaks when you are an early teen. This process is not just something that affects older people. We should be looking at our lifetime risk. Our office, we're calculating a 10-year risk on you. What is your risk of having a heart attack or stroke in 10 years? Now, a new calculator has come out, and they're looking at a 30-year risk. What is your risk over 30 years? We should really be looking for the long term and treating heart disease at a much earlier age, in our teenage years even. And that all comes back to lifestyle and all the things we've been talking about. Wow. Because men are even at higher risk for strokes. It is a very alarming high percentage in the black and brown community. I see it in my office every day. I go into the hospital and it's mostly black and brown folks that are in the hospital with 
on dialysis, on that, you know, and uh, and getting amputations at a much higher rate than our non-black counterparts. Uh, it's obvious, but I love it when people come to our office and they and they start getting better. And that service that I can possibly give our patients, whether you're black, brown, yellow, doesn't matter. We got everybody coming to the office. We love it when our patients are getting better. As long as we're able to get you off the medication, get you feeling better, that's what we're focused on at Morris Cardiovascular. We want to talk about the difference between heart attack and stroke and how is it different in men and women? Symptoms, what are we looking for? Okay, there's different things that can cause a heart attack, but imagine that a typical heart attack occurs when you have a blood vessel. You have a nice open blood vessel, but as lifestyle continues to worsen and we eat the wrong foods, we get plaque buildup. And then as it gets more significant, we get a 50% blockage in the blood vessel. Okay. And then it eventually becomes a 70% blockage in the blood vessel. And when all you have to do is get a small blood clot hung up in that area, boom. And that's what's called a heart attack. When you block the blood supply to a blood vessel to a portion of your heart. Now, this same situation can happen in the blood vessel of your carotid artery, which is here in the neck. Imagine you have the same process in the arteries of the neck where it gets more and more blockage there. And all of a sudden you get a blood clot that forms and clogs it off. And that clots off the blood going to a portion of your brain, which is called a brain attack. Oh, and that's what a stroke is, a brain attack? I did not know that. So a stroke is a brain attack. Okay. The brain attack as a heart is the heart attack, as a clogged coronary artery causes a heart attack. And there are different types of strokes also. You can have a situation where you can have an aneurysm in the head and that can bleed and you can get a stroke from bleeding into the brain. But the predominant strokes that occur in America come from cardiovascular disease and blockages in the small blood vessels and strangling off blood supply to certain parts of the brain and leading to damage to the brain, which we call a stroke or brain attack. The symptoms, how do you know if you're having a heart attack or a stroke and how is it different in men and women? Standard symptoms that we see typically is pressure in the chest, which is a pushing down, books on the chest, squeezing on the chest, usually lasting for 15 to 20 minutes, and then it eases up. Difficulty breathing that is unusual for you. You used to be able to walk five blocks and now you can barely walk three. Swelling of the legs. Pain that goes down the arm. You hear about this left arm pain. Sometimes it goes down. Sometimes it can be a pressure sensation. It goes up into the jaws, up into the neck and the jaws, and a pressure that goes down the arm, a heavy feeling down the arm. Now, those are classic cardiovascular symptoms. Women get the unusual symptoms. And so that's the reason why women have to be very careful. So simple things like fatigue. Now, we always have to be careful with this because you can get fatigued for a lot of different reasons, okay? Diabetes, hypertension, all these things can lead to fatigue. But women can get the unusual symptoms such as fatigue or just early shortness of breath, the atypical pains across the chest that we have a tendency to blow off, you know, hearts just racing out of control, These can all be signs and symptoms of a heart attack. Women don't get the typical symptoms that men get. And so therefore, women typically either blow off their symptoms themselves or they get blown off by doctors and emergency rooms. That doesn't happen nearly as much as it used to because we become, as physicians, more acute, more aware that women really need to be taken very seriously 
when they come in with cardiovascular symptoms and they need to be tested, we need to be aggressive about um, making sure that women are doing okay when it comes to cardiovascular disease. Somebody comes in my office with these kinds of symptoms, they will be tested. Nausea and vomiting, I heard that was common for women, increased nausea. Can be associated with heart cardiovascular disease. Of course, it can be associated with a lot of other things, but that can be a part of the spectrum also. When you're having the symptom, you have some pressure in your chest and, and then you feel nauseated and it gets to the stomach. It's complicated the way the nerves work, but the nerves from the cardiovascular system and the GI system are intricately related. And you can get nausea, vomiting. That can be a part of the spectrum. A question from one of our listeners. She says, why does palpitations only happen at night while I'm sleeping? That's extremely common. Palpitations are simply a feeling in the chest that people can feel where the heart is kind of bumping around and they're very irregular. Most people are distracted throughout the day when they're happening. And then the moment they get home and it's quiet, and it's just them and their hearts, all of a sudden, the hearts are jumping around. They don't understand what's going on, particularly at night when you're in bed and it's quiet and it's just you and your heart. I have an irregular heart rhythm. It's perfectly fine. I'm okay. Um, but the only time I notice my regular heart rhythm is at night and it's, it's me and my heart all by myself. And all of a sudden I, I can feel my heart and they're just a little irregular. I had it checked out. I'm fine. So can you talk a little about medication? Yes. Medications. Again, we specialize in getting people off the medicine here, but medicines are important. And I, I want to stress that I'm not encouraging anyone to stop their medication. Uh, there's a time if I'm having a heart attack, give me some drugs. I need drugs. I don't need broccoli and all that kind of stuff. Always stay on your medicines when you've been prescribed. So medicines have come a long way over the years. And the biggest medications out there that help to lower cardiovascular risk, all the studies are showing are things like aspirin to help lower cardiovascular risk. This should not be taken just as a preventative. It's only prescribed for people that have established cardiovascular disease. It used to be that everybody be on an aspirin to prevent uh, heart disease. That, that guideline changed about 10 years ago. Studied that and they found out it was causing more problems when people were taking it for prevention. They were getting more gastrointestinal bleeding and complications because of the aspirin versus the reduction in cardiovascular risk. So they now changed the guidelines such that the new guidelines over the last 10 years have said that it is no longer to be taken as a preventative. Only if you've had a stroke, if you've had a heart attack, if you've had a test, an ultrasound, which we do right here in this office, and if we've established that we've seen it on a CAT scan or something, hardening of the arteries anywhere in your body, then those people need to be on an aspirin. And those people benefit from reduced cardiovascular risk. But just as a prevention, no longer. That's done deal. Very interesting because I had an old allergist to tell me when COVID started, he was like, take an aspirin because COVID was causing blood clots in some people. So he was telling people to take zinc and aspirin and all of that. But that's for COVID. COVID does predispose you to blood clots. So that's a different story than taking it as a pure preventative. I'm just taking aspirin every day to help reduce the heart attack. Now, there's tons of medicines. Of course, the Ozempics of the world and the Manjaros and these injections that people are taking for diabetes are all coming across and they're talking about reducing your cardiovascular risk and these kinds of things. However, I want to try to steer people back in the opposite direction of prevention, prevention, prevention. Choose food as a medicine. It's always going to be the greatest medicine. Choose getting tested and screened 
as a proper habit that you want to do. The best way not to have a heart attack is to prevent heart attack. So what about new advancements in cardiovascular medicine? Is there anything new on the horizon? On the innovation side, oh my gosh, we've got tons of toys now that we can use. We can now replace your heart valve without cutting the chest open procedure where they take a brand new valve on the end of a long tooth and we can gently insert it into uh, the old valve and it works just fine. There's so much innovation out there now that we didn't have years ago. But I tell you, it's very expensive and no one can afford it, not even the rich folks. (laughs) And so because it is so ungodly expensive, it's cheaper to be healthy. And for those that say, well, I can't afford to stay healthy. Well, just wait till you get your doctor bill. You'll see what's expensive and then you'll hopefully take your money and go get you some vegetables and some physical activity. You're either going to pay now or you're going to pay dearly. We're going to ask you three or four more questions. It's getting late. I know you need to spend time with your wife. That's important. I'm a wife, so I know what that's like. (laughs) Let's see here. Let me see what question we want to make sure you answer tonight. This person says, my dentist told me that taking care of my teeth takes care of my heart, but didn't say how. Is that true? Is there a correlation? Infection in your gums and inflammation in your gums. And the studies are showing that the more inflammation you have in your gums, it actually predisposes you to cardiovascular events for the future. It increases your risk. And it has to do with inflammation. And we now know inflammation is linked to every, just about every medical problem on the planet, from diabetes to coronary artery disease to cancers to dementia inflammation, inflammation, inflammation. If you have something in your body that's chronically inflamed, i.e. your gums, then that's going to set up a cascade that's going to predispose you to blood clots and predispose you to vascular complications. The inner lining of your blood vessel is affected by this chronic inflammatory state. So he is absolutely right. And we have more dentists now who are referring us patients wanting to make sure that their cardiovascular systems are okay. And I I like that. I'm glad the dentists are now becoming more aware of that. Oh, that's good. That's good. So take care of your teeth, basically. I I had a quick question. What about energy drinks? We talked a lot about how young people are having cardiovascular um, issues and a lot of college kids, everybody's into the energy drinks. What is your take on the energy drinks? And Does it have an effect on the heart? Energy drinks are bad news. Absolutely. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Especially our young folks are taking energy drinks to take the place of good sleep to take the place of stress reduction, to take the place of something that they need to be doing in terms of healthy habits for their heart. Going to come back and get them in the long run. They can't keep running high on these things. And eventually, when done over a long period of time, it actually kind of shut down your adrenal glands. Adrenal glands are like, okay, look, you're just going to provide yourself with all the caffeine and boost that you need. I'll just shut down. And of course, that's when you've taken them for a long period of time, but they're bad news. I'd strongly discourage, uh, that's maybe part of the reason why I'm getting so many palpitations coming in my office from young people, because they're just loading up on caffeine and five-hour energy drinks and not getting proper nutrition, not hydrating. Plus, these things also dehydrate you also, because it's caffeine. 
So you wind up dehydrated and setting yourself up for other medical problems down the line. I do not encourage them at all. Would that be the same as highly caffeinated coffee? Coffee actually has some benefits. It has antioxidants in it. So a cup of coffee a day, I don't have a problem with that. So I myself am cutting back my coffee. I have one cup. I'm down to a third of a cup of coffee now daily just because I know the the overall effects of that make you extra jittery and cause all kinds of problems. And I'm I'm trying to be more conscious with it. Last question, and then we'll see if you have any final thoughts. Okay, so someone's a doctor. How do you care for your heart? How do you care for your heart? Is it hard getting your family and friends on board? Absolutely. My biggest service to my patients is to take care of me first. So I take it very seriously. If your plane is going down, you put the oxygen on yourself first before you help somebody else. I take that very seriously. So I get up every morning. I have some degree. I call it my me time. I've been doing it ever since my kids were young. My wife and I are now empty nesters. I still do it. I have to give it to myself first before I give it to anybody and everybody else. As if you don't give it to yourself, you have nothing to give. So up every morning, I have some degree of meditation that I do, physical activity. I didn't say exercise. I'll have my smoothie in the morning, which is usually beets and blueberries and bananas. And oh gosh, with kale and turmeric and all kinds of stuff. You'll see, go to Mars Cardio Facebook and you'll see me in my kitchen making a smoothie. And gratitude. I keep a gratitude journal. Every single night, I write three things that I'm grateful for. And because gratitude is power, it helps to lower the cortisol levels. It gives me perspective also every day. I'm grateful for this interview that I'm having with you right now. I'm grateful for the opportunity to share something with hopefully as many people as possible. And I'm grateful for the both of you. You will get entered into my journal tonight. Nice. Appreciate that. That's awesome. Question. Are you playing basketball? We read in your bio about you playing alongside Michael Jordan, right? I don't play as much anymore because of the up and down on the knees, but I'm actually training for a triathlon now. I, I do more long distance and also just high aerobic types of physical activity to keep my cardiovascular system in check. And those include swimming, kickboxing, different things. I like to hike. I like to get outdoors. Every morning I'm outdoors. So nature is also medicine. So I get a healthy dose of nature. I know you love that, Raquel, don't you? Yes, I love nature. Yes. (laughs) It's an app. It's called Nature Dose. It measures how much time I spend outside. 120 hours a week, I think, of being outdoors or something like that. So, yeah. So replace your screen time with outdoor time. Right. That's a good goal. Is there anything that you want to share with us that we haven't talked about tonight? Any final thoughts you want to share with our listeners? I think we've covered it. The mental health piece is critical. And I want to make sure that everybody knows uh, the importance of doing that. So doing things like journaling, how you accept challenges in your life, the adversity that we come in our life, choosing to look at it, that something's going to build you versus tearing you down, actually looking for challenge because that's going to help to build you. The gratitude piece, just being grateful and exercising some time to acknowledge that on a day-to-day basis. Know your numbers. Know your A1C and know what your cholesterol numbers are and blood pressure. Oh, and use plants as medicine. We're at MarsCardio.com. 
That's our website. And we are on Facebook. If you just go to Facebook and put in Mars Cardio, it will pop up to the top. We've got a young person in our office, Mackenzie, who you guys talk to, and she's got us on TikTok, a couple of other <laughs> platforms, I believe. So you'll find all kinds of stuff out there. We're on all the major social networks, thanks to Mackenzie. But most of our stuff, you'll find us on Facebook, our Mars Cardio Facebook page. Our motto is one foot in the office, one foot in the community. So we do a lot of stuff in the communities, especially in the Hopewell area. So we are avidly make Hopewell the first blue zone in the state of Virginia. It's all tied in with the lifestyle in Hopewell. So lots of stuff in the community. Very good. Very good. Dr. Morris, oh gosh, we learned so many things from you today. So many takeaways. It's been very enlightening about taking care of your heart and the rest of your body. What you're doing in your office is wonderful. Prevention, prevention, prevention. We want to thank you. And you are always welcome here at R&R Experience. Our listeners have lots of questions. I'm sure they're going to have follow-up questions for you. So we'll make sure you get those questions. But it's, it's been a joy just learning, hearing from you and your expertise. So thank you for joining our show today. We appreciate it. We really do. Yes, thank you. I love your enthusiasm. I love your energy. What we're doing is important work. So your voice is critical. And I thank you for your service also. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.